Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. and listeners. I'm Rudolf, your host, and this is the Thoth Hermes podcast, season two, episode 10. Yes, and that might come as a bit as a surprise to you. It was also a surprise to me that I'm releasing this interview today on May the 12th, 2019. Last time I told you that this episode nine would be the last one and that today we would be going to start season three and now this but i have a good reason for that as i will explain to you right away i have recorded a very interesting talk with swedish occultist musician author film director publisher well you name it with carl abrahamsson he is really a Swedish Renaissance man of the 21st century. And yes, I have done this talk with Carl about a year ago on April 22nd, 2018, to be precise. And at the time, he had just released his new book, O Culture. For the reasons many of you already know, the podcast then took a break and this interview did not get published. And now, after a year, I thought, hmm, this is a bit far off. Maybe I should not do that anymore. But then I listened to it again, and I thought it would be a pity not to have you hear what Carl has to say. And I then talked to Carl, and he is more than happy that we still release this talk today. So here it is. But no worries. The new season has, with this, just been pushed away for a week or so. And the first interview of season three has also already been recorded. I'm going to tell you more about that after the talk with Carl. For those who are new to the Thoughts Hermes podcast, let me welcome you. And on this podcast about the Western esoteric tradition, you can find the podcast on all usual podcast outlets like Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Blueberry, Spotify, iHeartRadio and many others. And of course, you can always download or stream the podcast from our website, which is www.thoughthermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. From that website, you can also send me some feedback, leave a voice message, use the contact form, or you go on Twitter or Facebook and send me a message there. And of course, there is also email info at thoughthermes.com. 
talking about the website, I just heard from a few friends, actually, I knew that, but I had forgotten about it, that as we have now already 25 episodes online, the very early ones might not appear on your iTunes, Apple Podcasts, as they call it now, listings. So if you want to listen to the very first podcast, the five first podcasts of South Hermes, you need to go to my website or to another podcast provider. Why don't you go just to sauthermes.com and listen to it there? And I tell you, it's worth also listening to the very first episodes. I want to remind you as well that we are now producing this podcast also on YouTube. You can listen to this interview here also on YouTube. And yes, you've heard the word music. Today, there will be some music added to this interview-only episode. So it is interview-only, no news, no reviews, but there is some music, and I have a very good reason for that. The reason is that our guest, Carl Abramson, is also a musician, and we are going to play some music that he has made. So why don't we start right away with a piece of music and I'll explain more about it just after that piece before we then start the interview. Let's listen to a piece of music by Carl Abramson with that lovely title, I'm in love with a witch. Thank you. 
I'm in love with the witch. This was from the album that was released in 2018 by Carl Abrahamson with our guest on our Thought Hermes podcast tonight. And the album is called The Larval Stage of a Bookworm. Yes, indeed. I don't know if Carl talks about himself when he talks about that bookworm. It might well be because he has not only been an author and but also a publisher. He's a freelance writer specializing in material about the arts and entertainment, esoteric history or culture and portraits for the international market. He lectures in art schools, universities, symposia, conferences. Well, he's really somebody who knows a lot of stuff and who talks very well about it. I don't think I have to introduce him a lot. And now let's just straight away go into that wonderful interview. Welcome on the Thoth Hermes podcast to Carl Abrahamson. Here comes the interview. Welcome, Carl Abrahamson, to the Thought Hermes podcast. I'm very happy to have you here today as a guest. And our listeners, I know, are already very much looking forward to this episode because um, they have heard also from me and from other people a lot about you. And also the opportunity that we meet today is a new book that you have published a few weeks ago, which is called O Culture. So plenty of things to talk about. Welcome, Carl Abramson. Mm, thank you very much. It's it's uh, always a great pleasure to be on new platforms and talk to new people and uh, also reach out because I know that there are a lot of people that are interested in these topics. And a book, of course, is one way of doing it. Or, you know, if you can go in person, that's fine. But uh, I've been doing a lot of podcasts and it's a great way to to uh, communicate. So I, yes. I, I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Especially for, for a field like ours, which is, we must say, a bit of a niche field. And mm -hmm. of course, the mainstream media won't have time or money or whatever to spend on those topics too much. And if they do, we're not always happy with what they do. Isn't that the case? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah. I'm glad we have now the possibility and technical means to, to do those things. Yep. Which in a way brings us already in the middle of the topic that we are going to talk about a bit later, O-Culture, because I would say that an O-Cult podcast is also maybe part of O-Culture, but we will discuss that a bit later and mm. see if you would agree. Um, but first of all, let's talk about the man Carl Abrahamson, mm -hmm. um, how you happen to become what you have become, or maybe you tell our listeners first how you relate to the esoteric and your cult worlds, what attracted you to 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 look at them, to be in them. What's your background, Carl? Mm -hmm. Well, that that of course is a one huge topic, but I'll, I'll try to uh, make it uh, condensed and brief. I think. Early on um, in life, meaning sort of early teenage years, there is a tendency in most people to be, you know, looking for interesting things in this individuation process and, you know, trying to find out who, who you are and what, what you're interested in and what you want to do with your life, etc. Those basic, basic existential questions. But 
and and many people at least in the western sphere uh, have a sense of uh, rebellion that should be in- integrated in this um, um you know phase in life and in that rebellion mm-hmm. could of course be that you rebel against something uh, having to do with the parents and things like that or it could just be like a general interest in things that you're curious about things. And I, I would say that I was very curious uh, and I still am, I hope. So mm-hmm. I started looking for things and I was very hungry in terms of um, culture that was speaking to me. And that was you know, like comic books and, and music, of course, and film and TV and all those things. And I think I early on realized that I felt very much an affinity with like the anti-hero. I always identified with the bad guys in the gangster movies. And um, there was this thing where where um, the mainstream wasn't that interesting. And when I gradually started looking for books and of other things and other um, uh, you know art history and stuff like that, there was this fascinating revelation saying, "Whoa, I can resonate with this." But why am I resonating with this specific picture and not that picture? So um, it was one part searching for things. And it was also like a meta level of asking myself, why am I interested in this and not that? And of course, one huge part of this um, research field was uh, occultism that, that, you know, comes in with, with culture and horror movies and certain type of um, music that was going on at this time. And I just felt very um, enthused by it, like, uh, you know, finding home because there were so many things that were uh, integrated in this vast field called occultism. I mean, it's not really, um, it's not a suitable term and especially not anymore because it could be so many different things, but I found it very interesting. And you come across these persons like Crowley, for instance, and, you know, the Golden Dawn and all these classics in a way in, in the Western sphere. And of course, you know, LaVey and uh, this kind of more pop occultism. Uh, and I, again, I felt a strong, strong sense of resonance. And then I've always been one that I take in things and I integrate them and then I filter them and give them back in a way. So that's why I got educated as a journalist i wanted to write about things that were of interest to me so i did that early on that my first publishing ventures in terms of fan scenes had to do with comic books i interviewed comic book artists and writers and then later on it became music so i had a like a music fan scene called lollipop uh, during i think 1985 and 1987 mm-hmm. uh, so that was the same kind of hunger and i took in a lot of stuff i met a lot of people i networked basically and then i filtered it and gave it back in my own writing, in my own photographs. And it turned out to be the very same thing with occultism. I was very much of a networker and I wanted to have my own direct firsthand experience of all these things that I had up until then only read about and been inspired. So I got involved with Topi, the Temple of Psychic Youth, with Genesis Peorage in England, uh, with the OTO that was just basically starting up in in uh, Scandinavia, and uh, I helped start the OTO in Sweden specifically, uh, and also at the same time um, I got involved with. Uh, not so much maybe the Church of Satan per se, but in a friendship with Anton LaVey. And that led on to many interesting things. And it wasn't just that I was interested in, you know, going through like initiations and uh, rising through a hierarchic structure. I was very interested in what was being taught in a way, the the, the intellectual uh, mm-hmm. stuff, the fodder. 
uh, and also looking at that uh, while I was doing that. Again, having this meta uh, aspect or level in myself where I ask myself, why is this relevant to me? Uh, so it's been one part actual experience and one part Carl analysis in a way. And that's been very good. And then later on, of course, uh, being uh, very much of a writer and a publisher, I started the Fenris Wolf, which was back then like a magazine was like just another fan scene. The first came out in 1989, I think. And then up until 1993, the first three issues. Mm -hmm. And then that was, you know, totally bringing in the culture that I was involved in writing about that, writing about the people that I'd met, writing about, you know, interesting phenomena, interesting cultural aspects that carried these occult uh, seed. Uh, and then, you know, life happens and you drift away and the Fenris Wolf ended, but I was still carrying on in my different, you know, the Topi thing and the OTO thing and the Church of Satan thing, and also some other things. I became very interested in Taoism, integrated a lot of that sort of Chinese philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then, Uh, you know, life just moves on and on and on. And then 2011, that was already seven years ago, um, I started a new publishing company together with a Swedish artist. And we talked about, shouldn't we revitalize the Fenris Wolf again? You know, and that was exactly what happened. So issue number four came out 18 years after issue number three. So that was a long wait. But now, on the other hand, it's an annual book, a thick book. So And that made me think about this idea or concept that I call magical anthropology. It's not really accepted within normal academia, but I find magical anthropology super interesting because wherever you look, regardless of culture or environment, there's always some kind of magical thinking there, you know, from the most primitive kind of superstitions to highly complex, you know, existential equations that are actually still magical thinking. So um, that's what I do. I work with writing more and more and publishing books that are of interest in this magical anthropological um, perspective or an occultural perspective. And I'm very happy because um, it's something that I've never given up in a way. Of course, I've had other jobs and things like that, but I've always been focused on doing what I do. And now that as I'm uh, growing older, I'm 52 now, I can see that the, all that work and diligence and sort of perseverance is paying off in the sense that I get published by bigger publishing companies and, you know, I have a greater outreach and it's just wonderful because I'm, 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 um, in the position where I can really, you know, engage in all these things that, uh, I'm still very interested in. I am as interested now in these magical things as I was when I was like 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I was going to say, and suddenly you're beyond 50 and you're still the same, well, not mm-hmm. quite the same, but you're still in the same field and interested yeah. in those things, which is, I sometimes feel a bit worried about myself because I seem to be the only one of those people I interview um, who has not started at age 15 mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. in the magical world, but still, um, I think it's a kind of development. Your, yeah. your answer has triggered so many further questions um, uh, in me. So if I may, if I may just pick out one or two to, to, yeah, to yeah. in depth in what you were saying, um, you, you mentioned the young generation who is always questioning and curious, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also funny because there are many of about our age who are now around to have been like that 
35 years ago. And I sometimes have the feeling, I have three kids, and I observe that also with them. I sometimes have the feeling that our young generation today has become less critical, less questioning, and maybe therefore also less interested in what the occult has to offer them. Am mm-hmm. I wrong in that or do you make the same observation? Well, I can say that that my observation is pretty, very similar. Uh, I think one one problem is though is that when when um, let's just say that when when one is over fifty, uh, the perspectives tend to be very critical against uh, young young people. Absolutely. I can see that we very much in myself. We very young. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the thing is that so that's one aspect that has to be sort of looked at and, and maybe removed mm-hmm. when we look at this and and say that of course it's a completely different ball game and they have what they have is perhaps uh, not so much a different attitude i think there's a great sense of curiosity there but they uh, they can find the information so quickly and it's so you know uh, evanescent in a way it just the information passes by the meaning of course when it's uh, you know they are integrated into the internet and they can find uh, many answers to many questions but it's not the thing which i guess we would call uh, a wisdom it's only knowledge yeah. and it's not not even it's kind of ephemeral because the knowledge is there to answer an immediate question it's not part of a cluster of knowledge that can be turned into wisdom you know when when things are allowed small pieces of fact are allowed to resonate and grow together in your own mind and create your own worldview. So that's something we're seeing, you know, with the fake news and all these things is that um, uh, our reality through the media has become much more malleable, much more possible to manipulate. And, And that I can see and maybe criticize in young people that yeah, there. Even if they can sense that something is wrong or not applicable or not useful, they will pass through it and they will just look um, ephemerally for something else. There's, there seems to be no ma- major will to create this cluster, which is super important in the individuation process. You know, because it's not about finding uh, answers to questions. It's about you know creating some kind of soul that's a vague concept i know Mm -hmm. but but still there is that thing um and i think that uh, time in general um from when we wake up to when we go to sleep you know time is exponentially increasing in its presence we are more fragmented like right now when i'm looking into my computer and talking to you i see this counter saying that we've spoken for 13 minutes and Mm -hmm. 31 seconds and then if i look up to the right there's the clock you know Mm -hmm. all these things that fragment our thinking and our our, um, you know apprehension our our, uh, uh, way of looking at at the world and it's even worse for the kids because they are just uh, there's like no long-term focus. Yeah. Uh, it's all in very tiny fragments. So in that sense, maybe I could say that it's hard for them or, or, or speculate that it's hard for them to integrate uh, thoughts and thought systems and concepts that are actually very 
potentially very deep reaching, reaching down into one's, you know, unconscious, into one's subconscious, and also with the incentive to actually work with it during processes that are kind of hard and sometimes even painful. I mean, an analogy would be a psychological one that, that sort of deals with the same existential issues. You, you can't go through like um, some kind of therapy or psychological analysis uh, uh, in an afternoon or, or in an hour or in a minute. It's not possible. You can't have those epiphanic things. Um, of course uh, not. Yeah. And, 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 then, and then sort of think that it's automatically integrated and that you will become a more stable person. So that kind of thing. And, and for me being a book person, I see that the dividing line nowadays is between people who actually read books and people who don't. And, and I, I, of course, I have to accept ebooks. So, you know, if people read ebooks, that's better than them not reading books at all. So it's not in the physical form that that's not the thing. But this thing of integrating and going through lengthy pieces of text, information that has the potential to become one's own wisdom. So in that sense, I, I see a problem um, which is part of a huge, larger sort of systemic problem of the decline of um, knowledge and education. And it's going to create huge problems, I think. Yeah, I would agree. But do you, in your experience, find that young people still have interest in the occult world? And if yes, would you think this kind of interest is different from what you remember what it was to you or has that has that been reduced quite a bit no i i don't think it has been reduced i think i think it's the same and i think uh, just by this uh uh, total availability via the internet. That's something that, that I didn't have when I was in that curious uh, first phase. Sure. But kids today and young people today, they have, you know, if they're interested in something, they will Google it. If they're interested in something, something slightly more, they will go to Wikipedia. Yeah. And then from there, it can sort of become its own little tree with branches of, of knowledge and, and, you know, finding the information. So I think that, um, that's a very good thing. And that's part of a globalization, which is, of course, what the Internet is providing, is that we are no longer stuck with uh, cultural, um, what do you call it, like cultural incentives. Yeah. Like, for instance, when I was young, I went to the occult bookstores in Stockholm and they had a certain number of books having to do with which distributors they had, you know, it was the, that kind of materialistic dictation of, yeah. uh, of, of information. It was a pre-selection so by, by, by somebody else, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And then, yeah, of course there was Crowley, of course there was Golden Dawn, of course there was LaVey and, you know, it was a Western thing, but today with, with this kind of a smorgasbord of potential magical resonance, I can see that young generations, not even, I mean, not just like what you call millennials, but, you know, younger and also slightly older, like the 30 somethings, mm -hmm. um, they're all very much into like um, magics from, from, uh, from exotic places. You know, it could could be uh, magical aspects of Sufism or yeah. the ex Exodus religions that moved to over the West Indies to Southern uh, United States, like voodoo and things like that. And that's now being assimilated in in um, in cultural environments where they're not 
and this is in quotation marks, where it's, they're not like normal. Yeah, they yeah. were not like they were not like that ten years, twenty years, thirty years ago, or even further back. Then it was like totally ethnic, ethnically um, condensed and very esoteric in that sense. I see mm-hmm. that as a very I see that as a very healthy thing in the sense that, and I've written about that too. Is that um, one one uh, piece in the book is about this. Um, magic coin concept where you look at magic as a currency uh, almost like a monetary uh, currency and is it possible to exchange for instance some scandinavian rune magic uh, for energy that's basically um, central african voodoo yeah. you know it could, uh, is it interchangeable between people and people's psyches or is it more ethnically um, uh, fixed. I don't think it's ethnically or culturally fixed. I think it's totally, totally interchangeable. And I, that's why I, th- I see this this uh, interest via the internet as a very healthy thing. Mm-hmm. People can find out things. And of course, the, the key thing when you're interested in th- these things and you want to start walking on that path is you have to go with your own intuition and your own intuition is guided by something even more important and that's resonance. When you feel a resonance with something, you cannot remove that simply because it's not, you know, culturally or politically correct. If you're interested in something that is, you know, dark and dangerous and people hate it, if you resonate with that, you have to go with that. Or even worse, I'd say, if you're interested in this and you suddenly realize that you're interested in Christian mystics, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be a shock in some environments, (laughs) but you have to go with that. That's, yeah. that's the, that's the entire, you know, uh, wisdom of it from the point of view of individuation is that you're honest. You have to be honest with who you are. Exactly. And that, that brings us directly to, to the free will and to, to all those terms that are being used mm-hmm. so much in that, mm-hmm. in that environment. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Carl, uh, back to yourself for a minute. Um, mm-hmm. When I see, when I go on your website and I see just the menu tags up there uh, on your on your um, about page right it says mm-hmm, writing mm-hmm. of course think about that art photo music film so you are uh, active and very well active in all those fields you are almost like a renaissance man to me uh, and, <laughs> <I> also, <laughs> and also when i hear you speak uh, about how you approach occultism esotericism those different currents wanting to get to know them but integrating them into something which is you which is mm-hmm. you yourself so this yeah. is the old gnostic hermet the hermetic school basically which was founded in, in also in the renaissance time are you yeah. a swedish renaissance man of the 21st century uh, well, I, I, I would hope so. Uh, I think I, I should leave those definitions for other people. But I can tell you just from, from, a, from a historical point of view or from a cultural um, historical point of view, I love like the Itali- Italian Renaissance and, and the art of it. Because I think that, you know, uh, if you want to be bitter or cynical in a way, you could actually argue that nothing much has happened uh, since then in terms of, you know, elevating the human spirit to mm-hmm. its maximum potential because there were these explosive things going on in, in, in the arts and the sciences and, in, you know, in esoteric thinking. And there was an openness because the, the princes of the Italian city-states, they were not really, you know, subjugated by, by the Vatican because they held such financial power. They could, you know, in, they, they could integrate the Vatican, not the 
other way around. Uh, and that, of course, was some kind of liberating effect, uh, which made it possible for people like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci uh, to, to work on the things he worked on. I mean, where are the Leonardo da Vinci's of today? I have no idea. Mm. Uh, and so, so in that sense, yes. And, you know, if you want to talk about music, you know, has there been something uh, as fantastic as, uh, as Bach, you know, since the 17th century? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, uh, I think there are, but they are just very different in a bit yeah. the same way that you just explained how the use is different today. Maybe yeah. it's because music is my business, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see it also a bit in that way, but of course, Bach is great and there's hardly anyone I would put beyond him. But Mm -hmm. I think there have been others and still are who at least try to achieve the same. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. no, of course there are. Of course there are. But it's remarkable, though, that we think of everything today as being so groundbreaking and revolutionary. And, you know, we we apply a very technological uh, filter to and also progress. And it's a it's a business aspect. You know, now we even have uh, the so-called leader of the Western sphere. He tries to run his country by business models and it it simply won't work because it has never, never worked. You know, an organist that is a state or a nation is much more complex than that. Uh, But anyway, so I think that in terms of um, uh, the Renaissance as a a kind of a a concept, I am very much in favor of that because I think that it needs to be um, all of these ideas, whether they're scientific or occult or, you know, metaphysical, uh, philosophical, any kinds of ideas, they need to be brought out into the light of culture. They need to be in the public discourse. Uh, they need to be ventilated not only by experts, but integrated also um, as much as possible in the minds of the common people. Because any environment that becomes too esoteric, and that's, you know, occult history has shown that very many times, it becomes like a pressure cooker. And, and that when the pressure uh, rises, it will eventually like explode if it doesn't get any, any kind of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, vent- ventilation going or, or a diffusing of, of the pressure. Uh, and it's simply because of the fact that when human beings are together, meaning basically more than one person, when two or more people get together, there are other things at, in the works, this group dynamic, which is, you know, to return to Nietzsche in a way, you get the will to power going between the lines. Yeah. So you're discussing one thing which could be super beneficial to more people on one level. That's the thing. Well, I'm becoming very philosophical. That's the das Ding an sich, yeah. the thing in itself. But then you also have who are the people talking about das Ding an sich. And then you have their views and that could lead to conflicts and arguments and even wars. And of course, the victors write history. Yeah. And their so, perception becomes the truth. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the thing. That's why I think it's very um, good when even complex um, concepts like, for instance, in in um, modern day physics, uh, quantum physics, and all these incredible things that are going on, they're so hard to comprehend. But they need to be out there in the public discourse because otherwise, it's almost like we're living in a science fiction time. Mm-hmm. You know, where there are these crazy scientists, that these Frankenstein's dealing with outer space, and you know, uh, uh, Elon Musk being able to send up his his car in space. You know. The, this is it's a level of, of potential craziness that 
is very easily diffused when people are encouraged to talk about these things and, you know, integrated in culture, even with humor or satire or whatever. It just, uh, I think any environment that is is too esoteric has a tendency to become fundamentalist. And that is very true, for instance, in, re in religious um, environments where this cultic thing becomes, can lead to wars and killing Definitely. other people. Definitely. Um, I'm very much tempted now to ask you right away for, a def for your definition of a culture, but hold back. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to ask you for two mm -hmm. other definitions before. Um, Can you define, it's not easy, at least to me, it wouldn't be easy. Can you define the two words occult and culture separately? Um, like you would define them, like you see them. What is the occult and what is even more difficult, I would think, culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, they're very, very relevant uh, definitions and I'm, I'd be happy to, to try. Uh, and uh, when, when we talk about the, the occult, you know, there's always the, the obvious thing is to, to look at it from the strictly etymological Latin uh, meaning. It means something that is hidden. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, many things can be hidden, so it's not really that crystal clear. But the occult in general, it's, it's like... Um, an umbrella that has existed for a long, 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 long time, possibly as for as long as human beings have existed. And it means working with irrational processes in trying to improve uh, oneself or one's life's uh, circumstances or that of the tribe or that of society. Um, and it can integrate proto-science like we've seen uh, where alchemy became part of the foundations for, for chemistry and, um, and also physics and um, uh, also, you know, helped develop psychology. Uh, so it's kind of a proto proto science, but then you come to the question. So is there no longer any more uh, occultism is nothing occult anymore? Well, you could argue that with the internet and everything being so visible, mm -hmm. It's true. Nothing is really occult anymore. And also in terms of this, you know, we have science. Is there still some kind of proto-science that could be seen as occult? And I would argue absolutely. There are things going on that have been under the occult umbrella, like for instance, telepathy, many things having to do with the mind, you know, what the mind is capable of, uh, moving things with the power of your, of the mind, um, communicating with people in different parts of the world, simply via mind power. Those are things that, you know, the scientific environment haven't really touched yet, but it's not because they don't believe in it. They just haven't found, um, uh, a usable materialistic, you know, money-making angle yet mm -hmm. and when they do when they do they will absolutely um uh, look at this and then it will go from being something occult into something scientific it's the same now you know electric cars you know a couple of decades ago it was laughed at it was always this thing uh, where where um pioneers of science that are have usually taken inspirations from you know very early thinkers that have speculated about this and that's in a way the paradox empirical science actually has two um cornerstones that they are very they never want to admit that and i can't understand why and that's intuition and the other thing is speculation because when you mention those two to a so-called empirical scientist they will go no 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 it's only about you know trial and error trial and error mm -hmm. 
but all the ideas that they work on and try it they come from somewhere and that's where we get into the mind again and the unconscious and how uh, the human the complex human mind filters impressions also connected with that individual scientist's will to power you know because they want to make be successful they want to get the nobel prize etc etc so i would say that the occult still exists today but that general old school arcane thing that we read about in fairy tales and watch in movies um I'm not so sure that that's relevant anymore. However, it is more relevant with the individualistic aspect. And that's where we you know, can make a bridge to the culture because culture in general, that's something that is in a way easier to define. Uh, it's human culture we're talking about. And culture, if we look at nature, it's when we cultivate something, we put seeds in the ground or seeds spread and it becomes something. Mm -hmm. It becomes flowers or plants and stuff like that. And in, in terms of, of uh, the human culture, that's exactly the same. And if you think back, for instance, 1000 or 2000 years or even back to the old Greeks, basically all of through human history, what remains? It is basically only culture that remains because no one is really interested in whether there was a new kind of, um, you know, financial system or a new way of taxing peasants, mm -hmm. you know, but the architects that made fantastic houses or when you started having uh, the capacity to write on fragments of paper and those are still being read today you know these things where human thoughts and emotions have been able to live on for thousands of years that is only via culture so in that sense human culture is what um what it's all about you know we can say that a human life is not worth more or less than that of an ant you know, or any other sure. in, insect or, or human animal. But what makes us special is, of you know, the capacity to laugh, the capacity commit to commit suicide, and we have a pretty good intelligence. But what makes us unique is that we create culture, meaning things that are not of obvious utilitarian um, you know, use, yeah. you know, whether that's money or houses to live in. We can not only build a house, we can also build a beautiful house. And we can have several and that becomes a beautiful village, for instance. So I was recently uh, last week, actually, in in, uh, in Bavaria, in a small uh, town right on the border to, towards Austria. And, and it was fascinating to, to look at these houses where the facades are painted. And you think of that as being something that's, you know, uh, old, where there are biblical paintings on the facades of houses, normal um, houses for families mm -hmm. but most of the paintings in this particular village they were not you know 100 years old they were like you know some were only a couple of years old so they obviously the facades have been run down by weather and things like that and there are new painters coming and and you know keeping those biblical mo motifs um vibrant mm -hmm. and colorful and i think that's very beautiful and also very magical but it goes to show that tradition uh, which is also very important in human culture. Uh, you you can't the the life of the tradition is via culture. Sure. Would you say that 
culture and the occult um, both also live through the experience, not just through the fact that something exists, like you just said, for something before it cannot be used for an economical purpose, for example, it doesn't exist for mm -hmm. certain people, but it's the, the pure experience. Don't you have to experience both the occult and culture in order to make it your own? Can you see it from the outside? Uh, well, then, then, then we're drifting into to gnosticism again. <laughs> and I think that that's very, if you want to look at it from a personal, uh, like a personal tool in your own individuation process, then of course, the only thing that matters is your own direct experience. And that's the pure, uh, of course, yes. Oh, abs absolutely. Absolutely. So in a way you could look at it at a dis you can look at it distanced, you know, from, from afar, look at it as a phenomenon, both the occult is a fascinating segment of the history of human ideas and and culture is of course a wider scope it's all the things that we create as humans etc and culture is also fascinating but that's from my what i would prefer to call it when i'm speaking that would be my magical anthropological glasses that i have on that's the perspective but of course if we're talking about this as a um, an existential technology something with the potential to be used by me or by you then of course it becomes something else then it becomes like um, a tool is maybe too simplified it becomes like a cluster or a bag of tools different tools that you can use for different things you can use simply um, you know you can use meditation to become more focused in your work for instance you can use yoga or tai chi to integrate your body in this kind of um, happy life or focused harmony or you could um, be intellectually stimulated by for instance um, um hebrew the hebrew kabbalah or or working with the runes so these sort of uh, oracles that i would claim are not objective you know oracles in some kind of divine way but they are mirrors of the soul and there was actually uh, this one book of uh, about the crowley's toth tarot deck i think it's actually called mirrors yeah, of the soul yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that that's a wonderful thing because it's only applicable when you do it you can only get to the bottom of this thing this mystery which is of course you if you use these occult techniques or occult symbols, um, these arcane systems or newer systems, if it's all about finding out who you are, it, it's not about empirical science in that way. Mm. You know, Crowley, Crowley had this notion where he said that, you know, uh, the method of science, the aim of religion, what he meant by that was, of course, to apply some kind of empiricism uh, on all of these occult experiments, sure. like, we, you know, on the astral planes, etc. But I'm, I'm a little bit critical to that because that sounds to me like he was trying to create something to sell like creating a new kind of science or a method that could be sold in a way packaged and applicable to many different people. I don't think it is that simple and I don't think it ever will be because people are just so different and they have different backgrounds. And even if you, you and I come from the same culture, for instance, our experiences as kids are completely different. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, so it needs to be, you know, this saying to each his own, 
you know, ev- everyone has to find out his or her own way. And whether or not occult techniques from the past or from today um, are of any use, that will be up to those people to 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 look at and, and answer. And the same, of course, goes for culture, because they're not, I don't know how many people you could say that are actually working with culture in a normal Western country, maybe 10%. You know, fifteen yeah. percent. I have no idea, but still, what they are creating or what they should be creating is so valid, uh, and it will be more valid because it's only by what you know the cultural remains that exist. That's how we can judge uh, uh, an earlier civilization or earlier uh, nation or culture. Uh, it's by their culture. Um, so, in that sense. I'm surprised actually how, um, for instance, education has always been part of the cultural system. The educational system um, It's the same kind of field. And I get a little bit worried when I see that being deprived of funds and, and you know, more money. It should be something that's um, given more and more and more money. It's invested into the future, in fact. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, totally. That's a good way of putting it. It's an investment in the future. Mm-hmm. And also in terms of, you know, supporting culture and and encouraging uh artists and you know these things that's exactly an investment in the future yeah. of how that specific society or or country will be looked at i think this might be a good moment to take a little music break the break you regular listeners on thought service have been used to for quite a while and which i have not done on the last three interview-only episodes. Carl and I just talked about music, about culture, and about Johann Sebastian Bach. And I thought, well, why don't we now play a short piece by Johann Sebastian Bach? Here we go. Thank you. 
Johann Sebastian Bach. That was the prelude from his cello suite number one in G major. A wonderful piece of music, don't you think so too? And now let's go straight back to the interview with Swedish occultist, author, well, whatever, Carl Abrahamsson. Let's move to your book now, even though I, I would have so many more questions. It's fascinating <laughs> to talk to you. And I don't even think that we need to make a sharp distinction between what you have been talking now and about that book, because in a way, all that you have been saying so far is very much exactly the topic of that book. The subtitle of a culture is called The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward, which I find already a fascinating subtitle. Now, mm -hmm. when we look up the term uh, occulture in, for example, the Urban Dictionary online, right? Mm -hmm. um, we find, in fact, two definitions which, to me, are linked, uh, but I wonder how you see that. And then maybe... With your book in mind, you can also uh, explain what you say about exactly that question in the book. One definition would be that O-culture is a subculture within Western modern culture, um, which appropriates the occult themes in opposition to the dominant culture. So it's really a subculture, a counterculture. And the other definition is the more classical one, which is that um, an area of the arts, of music, of writing, etc., which stems from the occult. So mm -hmm. would you think that those two definitions are oppositions? Are they the same thing seen from different angles? Or how do you feel about them? Well, I, they, they, they're they not in opposition. Uh, I would say that they are uh, two different angles, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is that that um, uh, when when Genesis Peorich, you know, who coined the term uh, in the early 80s, uh, then, of course, it was just like a merging of the words. And that environment, which I was also a part of, the Temple of Psychic Youth, mm -hmm. uh, that became like, you know, almost like a worldwide movement, like a pre-internet internet of sharing information etc. That was very, very subcultural. But what's happened since then uh, is something that I can't really explain, you know, could be uh, a human need or a societal cultural need of new ideas to appear uh, and be integrated into the, the gene pool of ideas, so to speak, because we're at a point in human history where things could go very, very wrong. Sure. So maybe, and, and just last night I saw this film Annihilation with uh, Natalie Portman. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very dystopic and very interesting yeah. uh, film about um, a zone it's almost like uh, uh, Tarkovsky for uh, for the 21st century in a way, a, a zone where you can't explain what's going on in that zone. But there's this thing where where um, there's a change going on, even on a genetic level, very quickly within that zone. And and why that is, no one can explain. I think this may have come from outer space. But in terms of survival, uh, we have previously in chaotic times uh, gone through very rapid changes in culture and how we look at things, perhaps even on on, on, on genetic levels, uh, simply because there is a need, because otherwise we would come to such dire straits that we would die. Uh, and that goes for all species, you know, they all change. Um, and that's a sign of intelligence too, that we change when our surroundings change, we adapt. That's a part of intelligence. Yeah. Uh, but 
I so I think that it's it's uh, it's uh, it's both. It's not either or. It's it's both. Um, and I would say one example. I think I mentioned that exhibition three times in the book, actually. But this this wonderful thing with the Swedish painter Hilma of Klint. Yes. You know uh, who painted uh, in the early twentieth century these majestic like. 1000 paintings of the inner spheres of the astral planes. And she was friends with Rudolf Steiner. She had these, uh, you know, astral masters that helped her paint these large scale symbolic paintings. And she realized that when she was about to die, that, you know, if, if they are exhibited now, I will be regarded as someone who is just crazy. Again, you know, it will be a subcultural thing. So she said in her will that, you know, 20 years after I'm dead, then it's okay. And what's happened then is that her um, art has been, I don't think it's around anymore, but I think it came to Berlin and it was in Stockholm and Copenhagen and somewhere in the US and Madrid also. It was seen by over, over a million people. Uh, these major art institutions her wonderful paintings so uh, what i'm saying is that it's no longer subcultural these super occult things are happening in the mainstream uh, and and that of course uh, affects new generations of artists and they don't have to even go to like subcultural inspirations they can go to Hilma of Clint they could go to uh, August Strindberg mm-hmm. or many other you know mainstream writers uh, very revered writers or, or or Yeats the poet or or you know many many people like that sure. and filmmakers too who basically uh, are carrying the same message which is uh, that there are more things uh, than normal science and normal culture uh, al- are willing to show us. Absolutely. And the answer always lies within yourself. And and I think, you know, for artists in general, you know, um, they might be uh, feeling a strong drive to express themselves and they are developing this, this symbology of their own and their style of their own. But just to see that there are other artists who have been working with these highly, highly esoteric and beautiful and also powerful symbols and structures. Uh, it's, it's, it's changing a lot of things. I would say that it's been going on for the past 10 to 15 years now, and it doesn't seem to be, uh, drifting off. Uh, I'm, I'm, um, helping uh, an artist friend of mine he's preparing um, a, a big show in brussels uh, or next year sometime and that will also be like an inclusion of uh, occult art and and i get like requests and and i'm working on on uh, art schools teaching and i weave in a lot of occult ideas and that wouldn't have been possible like only like yeah. 15 years ago. <clears throat> and now, of course, I'm more visible now having written this book and I've, I've been lecturing a lot. So uh, they see that I'm no strange little devil comes in black leather and he tries <laughs> to corrupt the kids. I'm just a normal, you know, para-academic guy. Even though you uh, have known today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I corrupt with a smile. <laughs> I corrupt with a nice smile and a tweed jacket. Uh, but the thing is that that uh, it is no longer in, in, in the underground. There's no need for a subcultural approach. You know, it's out there in the open. And I think, um, again, culturally or perhaps even biologically it has to do with the fact that we are in need of very radical and new angles and ideas because otherwise if we keep pumping in in the same direction as we are or have been during the 20th century we will be extinct within 100 years definitely yeah um there is something like like 
well, how would you put that without putting a label on it? Because if I say truth movement, I don't mean the truth movement, get me right. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that through the access, through the internet, the possibility to, to more information and the possibility mm -hmm. to find your own thought behind that information. That's mm -hmm. exactly that first definition of a culture that they gave before, right? The, mm -hmm. the appropriation of a subculture of occult themes, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, this goes very much in parallel to me, to what you were just saying. We find out about things and also democracy is much more democratic when you know things that should not have happened in a democracy, for example, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. etc. All those things, that they start breaking up in a certain way. Let's hope that they lead us to a better understanding of them. Mm -hmm. but, um, would you put that as a package also? a bit on, on the edge or in the center, I don't know, of what our culture means to you? Uh, well, possibly. I mean, uh, if I understand you correctly, I think that that would almost require a very kind of... Uh, uh, dystopian uh, perspective in the sense mm -hmm. that you know maybe things need to be uh, disastrous uh, apocalyptic uh, completely havoc you know almost everyone dies <laughs> etc <laughs> before something new can emerge and and uh, i've been thinking a lot about things like that it's like maybe Uh, maybe there is some kind of, you know, biological need uh, for a purge. And again, we humans have hubris. We know that. But we're not really bringing much to the table. You yeah. know, uh, plants are bringing a lot to the table in terms of oxygen. Uh, but we're not really. We're just, you know, uh, devastating and polluting. <laughs> we're not nice guys. Even in kind of genetic evolution, other yeah. species bring much more to the table than us. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look to... to To intelligence and survival i think that the smartest creatures on this planet are insects you know it's like yeah. you know ants who have no it's in a way like this perfect you know i wouldn't say communist model but it's it's a very um, tyrannical uh, yeah. ant ant heap but it certainly seems to be working and and i don't see very many dissenting Uh, ants. So I assume that they're happy. Uh, but the thing is, what I think is uh, going on also, uh, and it has to do with this, again, uh, occult renaissance of these past decades, is this re-emergence of the book. And I write about that in the book too, is that where you have these beautiful occult publishers uh, producing beautiful editions, it's very high quality, and it's now no longer harnessing or talking about old stuff, arcane stuff. Yeah. There are new writers writing about uh, occult things from a new perspective, a modern perspective, yeah. and write, writing about modern uh, magical phenomena. I think that is also a seed sowing process because if something goes wrong, of course, there will be no computers. There will be no one to, to realize what a USB stick is or, or even, you know, how to, how can we connect these things when there, mm. when there's no internet, because there's no electricity, things like that. So then what will remain uh, at least are books, you know, hard books that people can hopefully read and realize, wow, these people here, they were really trying to, you know, warn us about these things or, and they were trying to, to preserve knowledge, uh, for the, the, um, you know, for later generations. And I still think that, you know, I've been called very 
you know, reactionary in a way for, for claiming this. But I, I th still think that the two most major developments in human history, uh, it's been the harnessing of fire and then making books, you know, yeah, when people sure. started being able to make books, because if we look at what still permeates um, human culture, in, uh, again, in the Western sphere, but I would say that it's almost global now too. It's writing. It's writing sure. and it's, it's information in books. And I mean, one example, although very superficial, could be this thing. I uh, can't even remember when it was, like maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there was this uh, strike in Hollywood. You know, the, the writers went on strike. And Hollywood is such a greased system where, where TV series and, you know, uh, it, it, it's a factory. And when people go on strike and there are no more ideas in writing <laughs> to become scripts, yeah, uh, yeah. it was like panic. And I think yeah. that's, that's very much a, uh, an indication of how important it still is. And that we were still just looking at that uh, very um, small, isolated island that is Hollywood. And it has to do with fiction and entertainment. But it's also true for, for the outside, you know, the, the, the world sure. outside of Hollywood. You know, if there are no people, for instance, can you imagine the, 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 um, the horrible scenario if there were no newspapers reporting on what was going on in, for instance, America today? You know, it, it would be, be devastating and it would be, be uh, the downfall of that country so quickly. You know, Absolutely. what would Donald Trump do without Twitter? <laughs> that too, that too. But, but I mean, it's, it's Sorry, just, uh, say that <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, no, he, he, he would probably go, go insane, you know, yeah. um, if he hasn't already. But, but the thing is that, that, um, uh, those old, uh, structures, meaning for instance, journalism, uh, critical, um, cultural criticism, uh, book publishing, even, even philosophy, <clears throat> and of course, history writing, they seem to be still the most valid and valuable uh, things around. Because again, I mean, you mentioned Twitter now, for instance, who in the future is going to look through all these gazillion tweets that people tweeted in their impulsive um, narcissism? I, yeah. I don't, I can't see it happening. Uh, but if you have a, a serious book of history uh, telling the story of what was going on in the year of 2018, then people will want to write, read about that. Yeah. Even within the electronic world, uh, uh, I must sound very old fashioned myself now, but when, when I have something important to discuss with a with a client or with somebody I want to make an interview or so that yeah. I don't use Twitter or Facebook because I need a trace of it. And yeah. I, I, sp I could spend hours on Twitter to, to retrieve an, a message, yeah. a message from years ago. And in, in, in email, I just entered the, the, the topic or whatever, and I'll find it. Yeah. And as you said, memory gets lost through that. And yeah, memory yeah, yeah. and tradition are very much linked, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There is one chapter, we're not going to talk about too much in detail about the book because we want people to buy that book because yes, it's a do. really important <laughs> book and it's, yeah. it, should be, it should be held in hands and, and taken uh, to your bedroom and, and read there and then out again. Yeah. Um, but there is one chapter I have to go firstly because unfortunately we're already approaching the end of, of this show mm -hmm. um, and of this interview and the title of that chapter kind of fits well to uh, uh, such an end. On the other hand, you're speaking here about two people which 
I both appreciate a lot. And personally, I have never seen anyone else than you and myself, if I may say so, mm-hmm. make a link, an obvious link between the two like you did here. Mm-hmm. And it's chapter six in your book, which is called What Remains for the Future. So that's a good, a good subject. Mm-hmm. But it says an initial attempt on a comparison between Alistair Crowley and Rudolf Steiner. Mm-hmm. Now, I find that a fascinating attempt to compare those two. Can you just give our listeners a little glimpse, a teaser, how you compare those two and where you see their similarities, oppositions, etc. Mm-hmm. Of course, no, I'm very happy about that that uh, piece, and and uh, I of course uh, thought about both of them because I'd been involved in in uh, the Crowley environment uh, mainly via the OTO since 1989. So I'm I'm see myself as a kind of a serious Crowley scholar. Uh, mm-hmm. And then Steiner uh, appeared a little bit later on, but also super fascinating. Uh, and what unites them is that they appeared at about the same time and they had, you know, an idea that integrated actually a lot of magical thinking and magical concepts because they both came from magical environments, Crowley from the Golden Dawn, Steiner from Theosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they wanted to break free. They wanted to become, you know, prophets in their own right, in a way. And and uh, they both concocted, they created something. So they were both great synthesizers. Crowley with this, the philosophy of Thelema and the magical system and, and Steiner with anthroposophy. That in, also involves many, many things. And what's so interesting is that both of these movements were so marked by the personalities of their creators. Mm-hmm. And that's also interesting, you know, uh, how these things work, because if you're controversial, you're scandalous, um, you can gra- you can get a lot of, uh, um, you know, what can you call it? Cultural uh, currency. Crowley is very popular as a, you know, countercultural person. He's I- integrated in, in the pop culture uh, and was, you know, integrated on a very uh, early level, shortly after he died. Uh, even, but he was still a scandalous figure, you know, so he's, he's more well known for his um, uh, character. Uh, traits than for the <laughs> philosophy. And Steiner, of course, was m- not so scandalous. And it actually was more of a, what Nietzsche would call an, you know, an Apollonian uh, character, but he worked really hard and he, he, he delivered these insane amounts of lectures and he networked and he was also smart to network with wealthy people. And so basically we have the similarities, you know, a person who creates a system and creates a movement uh, that carries uh, occult ideas, but rephrases those occult ideas to make them more palatable in a way for a, for a wider audience. And, and, um, you know, at this point in time, we could say that, you know, the OTO is successful. Uh, I'm sure the uh, Crowley's AA order is also successful and me, you know, so Thelema lives on and the book publishing is doing well in making good Crowley books. The same of course is true of Steiner. But Steiner of course became a success. Anthroposophy became a success in the yeah. sense that there are now over 1,000 Waldorf schools all over the world. My daughter has been in one for 12 years. 
And so, so and it's super interesting. And, and I'm thinking again, when we were in, in Germany uh, last week, is that this uh, bio, this bio, this bio, that bio, that. And it's, this um, and that's another chapter in the book, The Splendor of Soul is about yes. Lebensreform and how you can trace that back also to the turn of the um, previous century with, with, in the same environment that Steiner was in. So there, there are these... I find fascinating that you were taking Splendor Soul is an art chemical, an art yeah. chemical uh, subject as the title of that book. Yeah, yeah. But if, <laughs> but if you wanted to, to, to be a bit uh, rude in a way, you could say that, you know, if, there, if we looked at the relationship between these two people, uh, we could say that Steiner won. But of course, it's not a contest. Uh, uh, but there's, it's very interesting to see how, how important it is for um, uh, when you want to create movements and, and, and things like this. Uh, certain methods really work and other methods don't work so well. And the dilemma of the occult environment, you know, we can go to the Golden Dawn, we can go further back, we can go further forwards, is when there's this ego inflation in occultism that always happens and especially in group dynamics uh, that make yeah. people go i wouldn't say crazy but they they become so hubristic and so egotistic that it takes away the attention that should be on the ideas and the methods and the potential change that it can bring the members of a group for instance so instead you have egos one ego two egos battling with each other about petty petty ego things and steiner wasn't like that you know i don't think steiner was uh, much of an egotist at all um and yeah, he, I, would, I believe so yeah, yeah sure. and mm -hmm. so basically mm -hmm. he, he you know he left an empire where crowley left um oh let's put it this way steiner left an entire mountain filled with gems still to be plucked out of the mountain whereas mm -hmm. whereas crowley left a, a, a store with already finished gems in a way uh, yeah. Carl, what are your upcoming plans? Do you have anything in mind or already in work that you would like to tell our listeners here that they should be on the watch out for? Is there any new book, any other things that you would like to talk to us about? Yeah, yeah. There, there is one uh, interesting book that just came out on my own publishing company, Trapar, and, and it's very much tied in with the occultured book that I wrote, but that's on a different publisher, uh, publishing company. And, and it's a book by by uh, Genesis Peoridge and it's all of the interviews and texts that Genesis wrote about Brian Geisen who was his you know artistic and magical mentor in a way uh, Brian Geisen who was the friend of William Burroughs and you know very influential painter and, and writer who developed this kind of cut-up technique that has been very popular uh, with yeah. with artists since um, since the 80s but of course that stems back from the dada days with tristan sara they were doing similar kinds of experiments but that book is also very interesting because it connects with uh, people Uh, I knew, you know, uh, Genesis and Genesis knew uh, Geisen and it's mm -hmm. in interview based and it also has to do with very occult things, but it also very much has to do with with cultural things ergo or culture. Uh, so we're going to have a couple of um, book evenings, uh, Oslo next week, and then it's going to be Gothenburg and Stockholm and where we're presenting both these books, both the O'Culture book and the Brian Geisen book together because they make, uh, they make good sense together. Uh, and then on my own personal 
you know, what's happening. There's always so many things going on all the time, but <laughs> I'm very happy to say that I, I recently started writing a new novel. That's what I love the most. I've only done written one novel so far that came out. I hadn't even known about that. So right, yeah. right. That came out in, in 2013. So I've been nurturing many ideas for new novels um, all this time. And now finally I've started to write the 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 new one, so to speak, that will probably mm -hmm. take all of this year. Uh, so it'll be out next year sometime, but it's, it's, uh, that's what I love the most. So that's, um, you know, that's what really makes me happy. That's great. Well, that sounds all fascinating and we really need to be uh, looking out there to see what's coming up from, from the north. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> um, well, Carl, thank you so much for this fascinating talk. Um, I feel like we could have gone on for two more hours. At oh, least. I mean, we, we, we uh, could, but, but we can also resume uh, in another show, in another program. Absolutely. No, I, I was going to say yeah. that. I think you need to come oh, back sometime I soon. To. I would love to. Uh, and and uh, well, thanks so much for your time and for for being with us today. I am sure that uh, the, our listeners are going to appreciate a lot, and I hope they are already with their podcast in the earbox, running to the next bookstore <laughs> buying. Okay, I hope so too. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much, Carl, and uh, thank you so much for being with us today on Thoughts Hermes podcast. And well, looking forward to have you back uh, some other time. And um, keep us informed about your what you're doing and what's coming up. I will certainly do so. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. Purity, pain, and prurience. 
Thank you, Carl, for a wonderful talk that we had here with you on the Thought Hermes podcast. And after the talk, you heard a second piece of music also from Carl's new album called The Lalver Stage of a Bookworm. And the title of this piece was Inside You is Outside Me. I hope you enjoyed both the music and the talk. I also wanted to ask you, because I'm doing this for the first time, as I'm trying a few new things out here on the podcast, I did this moderation, the intro, the outro, the talk that I'm doing with you now for the first time without scripting it first. So it might seem a bit different to you this time. Let me know what you think about it. I feel quite happy with it now to do it without the script because I'm getting used to it. But maybe you don't like it. Let me honestly know what you think. Well, the next episode now, I think this time, is really going to be season three. Lena, my new co-host, and I have already recorded a very, very interesting interview with Susan Martinez. And we'll talk about that a bit more in a few days when I'll announce on Twitter and on Facebook that new interview is the exact release date. Won't be long, I promise. For today, I have to say goodbye to you, friends and listeners. Thank you for stepping by. Thank you for listening. It was great to have you with me, and I hope that this extra episode, this little surprise, was a good surprise for you. Let's listen together to Wendy Rule's soothing voice or if you are on YouTube, to Shostakovich. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.
Oh